Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Today, I kind of want to take some time, and and uh, last week was just such a beautiful presence of the Lord that moved during the message, and and, and I think it was a setup. I think it was a precursor to what we're going to go through today. And today, I just kind of want to take my time and, and teach a little bit because the, the concept that we're going to talk about today and the, 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 the takeaway from what we look at today is so, so vitally important from the church. And it's actually the one thing, the one defining factor uh, that Jesus gave to his church is kind of proof that you're part of his movement and part of this new thing that Jesus came to do. And so we've been doing this series called See the King, and I think we're on uh, week number seven now. Um, it's been great, and I don't know if y'all are bored yet, but I'm not, so we're going to keep going. So uh, I hope you enjoyed. I hope it's been good. And uh, But we're looking at Jesus and how he came to bring the world something brand new. And when we say new, it was new because nobody had ever done what Jesus did. Nobody had ever said the things that Jesus said and put things together the way that Jesus had kind of put things together, but they had heard about it. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he showed up to the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and, and they had these ancient promises. Even for an ancient people, they had ancient promises. The, the, the first uh, showings up of these promises were some 2,000 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, and then Jesus is 2,000 years before we show up on the scene. But when he showed up, by the time he showed up, about 2,000 years later, the nation of Israel, this people of God, this special chosen people of God, they were tired, and they were broken, and they were oppressed, and they had, they had you know, kind of stuck on this hamster wheel of an existence, and really, they had lost their reason. They had lost their purpose for even being a nation or even being called the people of God, the chosen people of God. And so they needed something brand new. They needed this promise that had been given them to actually come true. And when Jesus showed up, he said, hey, good news. The new is here. The new is here. But they kind of missed it because they were so used to being stuck and uh, kind of under the old system and, and the old ways. And then last week, we looked at the old covenant and how that Jesus was actually coming to replace the old covenant with a brand new covenant, a new way to be in relationship with the creator. And it was this unconditional covenant it was this thing that blew everybody's mind and nobody was really expecting it, that God was about to make a promissory covenant with, with people, not just with the special people, but with all people, that God was about to do something for people even though people had done nothing for God. And kind of the closest thing that we have in our modern society to, to kind of explain what like this word covenant is, right? Because we don't use the word covenant anymore, really. And maybe the closest thing is the idea of, of uh, wedding vows or marriage vows and you know, maybe in their, in their purest sense, it's, it's something unilateral. It is not something or a promise that I make to you, you know, based on whether or not you do something for me. Every, anybody ever notice that or get scared by that? Maybe that, you know, when you make your wedding vows, you are not saying, I promise, you know, rich or poor, sickness, health, better, worse, as long as that's not in there. You know, I promise to be, if you will, that's not in there. You are unilaterally promising yourself to this person. You are saying to this person, I will even if you don't. And then the beautiful thing about the marriage ceremony is that the other person says back to you, I will even if you don't. Yeah, I got quiet in here. That's kind of scary, you know. Like, wait, wait a minute, you know. No, I thought there was a loophole in there. And, you know, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. But this didn't make sense to anyone when it came to God. 
Right? Like, I mean, like, wait, nobody saw this coming. What, what kind of God would want to make promises to sinners? What kind of God would want to make promises to people who didn't belong to his religion, who weren't part of what he was doing? What kind of religion is it when the deity says that without getting anything from you, I am going to make something available for you? It was powerful. It was revolutionary. It was something completely brand new. But of course, this new covenant didn't sit well with the representatives of the old covenant, right? They, they got their power from the old covenant. They, they had their authority because they were the leaders of the temple, which was an arrangement that God had with people under that old covenant. And Jesus, if you're going to show up and tell people that they can get forgiveness of sins apart from the temple, then that means people don't need the temple anymore. And if people don't need the temple anymore, then people don't need the leaders of the temple anymore. And that's us. And we're on the outs, and if you take away the temple, then the people don't need it. Well, maybe the only thing people still need us for is to explain all of the rules and the regulations and the terms and the conditions. That's the way that we can still maybe control the people. We have the law of Moses, this national law, these terms and conditions of an old covenant. We are its protectors. We are the explainers of the law. And we decide when someone's following the law, you know, correctly and when someone is not following the law. And, you know, again, in this series, we've been talking a lot about like the stuff that was going on, the, the circumstances and the environment, the religious environment, political environment that was going on when Jesus showed up. But the law of Moses was their national law. It was a covenant that God had made with a nation, with one people. It was not intended for all people. And this people of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, their whole life and their whole society and their whole religious system, and so their standing with God, it all hinged on how well they kept this law of Moses. And, and, and in the time before Jesus showed up, there was like this vacuum where God did not have any special leaders on the scene. And so these different religious pressure groups kind of came up because they said, well, since nobody's kind of leading this thing, we're going to step up and we'll lead you. And the Pharisees came along actually with good intentions and said, we're going to teach you people how to stay in covenant with God. And the Sadducees and these different teachers, teachers of the law and the scribes, when you read your New Testament and you read about these people, that's who they were. They were originally started to try and help the people maintain the terms and conditions of their old covenant. And, and let me give you an, an example of kind of, you know, the way that they would work and the way that they kind of really, you know, kind of slipped a little bit in their purpose and kind of got off target. For example, Moses' law, this national law, it had really strict, uh, strict restrictions on their diet, right? And we know that even today, right? Uh, you know, Jewish folks have kosher food. Anybody know about that, right? There's, there's very strict dietary laws. And basically, and I'm way oversimplifying it, but stick with me. Basically, they can't eat any scavengers. So they can't eat lobster tail. Yeah, here's the worst one. They can't eat bacon. It's just sad. They can't eat bacon because these these scavengers were defiled animals 
And that word defiled, just, you know, that's not just unclean. Like it brings like a soul connotation, a religious, you know, a spiritual connotation. It is defiled. And so if you eat these things, if you eat what is defiled, then that makes you unclean. And so these guys, they wanted to help people out. And so they reasoned, well, hey, if scavengers are defiled, if scavengers are unclean and we're not supposed to eat them because they kind of root around in the dirt and they maybe root around in like dead bodies and when things are, you know, all messed up. Well, then here's the thing. If you root around in the dirt and don't wash your hands, or if you touch something dead and you don't wash your hands and then you eat something, then you too are just like a scavenger. You are now defiled yourself because you did not wash your hands. And so they came up with these really strict sanitary laws. And you can't eat anything unless you're extremely sanitary. And you got to wash your pots and your pans and your cooking service just a certain way. And what happened is their language, it was good intentions, but their language and their thinking took on this controlling spin that it only makes sense that if you love the pure and undefiled God, then you yourself will want to stay pure and undefiled. And so there's no strict law in the law of Moses that you must do this, but we are adding to that because, you know, make sure that everything that you touch with your hands to put in your mouth is pure. So you need to wash as we say, or else you don't really love God. You don't really want to be pure. You see how they got where they were when Jesus showed up on the scene. And Mark tells us about it, Mark 7, verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law saw some of Jesus' disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. And there's that word again, right? Not just dirty hands. No, these are defiled hands. It is, it is sinful. They are putting judgment on there, a condemnation of their soul. And you can kind of see what Mark's doing. He's trying to take the spooky out of the word defiled. And he's saying, they were eating food with hands that were defiled. And then Mark goes on to explain. That means like unwashed. Like they weren't doing all that bad of a thing. And so then, you know, they come to Jesus and they, they tell him this. And, and Jesus kind of rebukes them. And then Jesus quotes one of the most famous preachers named Isaiah. And he tells him, man, you know, he was right about you guys. You guys are just teaching the, you know, human commandments as, as commandments of God. And then Jesus gathers all the Jewish people around and says, okay, teaching moment, everybody. You guys all come around me. And Jesus called the crowd to him in verses 14 and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And what Jesus is saying is, look, if you really want to know if a person's pure, if you really want to know if a person loves God, then listen to their words. Look at their behaviors. Look at their actions. It's not about what they eat. Look at their habits and their values. And we see that now, and it kind of makes sense. We nod our heads. Yeah, Jesus, that's good advice. You know, yeah, you know what kind of tree it is, but what kind of fruit it produces, right? But to this Jewish audience, they were floored because Jesus' statement, as brilliant as it was, it made the conditions of their national covenant completely obsolete and outdated. And suddenly they didn't need it anymore. And Mark, who was Jewish and who interviewed Peter to write this down, he was Jewish also. Mark picked up on what Jesus was saying here. And this was groundbreaking to them. And in verse 19, Mark adds this on. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Like, this is incredible, guys. We can have bacon. They were so excited about bacon. At least I would have been, you know. I, but Jesus, you know, if we don't follow the dietary conditions of our national covenant, 
then we are out of our covenant relationship. And so Jesus was telling them, I'm bringing a whole new covenant into existence. I am replacing the old, giving you the new, a whole new way of living in covenant relationship with your God. And it's gonna completely replace your law. It's gonna completely replace Moses and everything that he gave you. And time and time again, Jesus would do this. Especially, and you know, maybe especially during his, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You can find this in Matthew chapter 5, but in some of the latest verses, Jesus would say over and over again, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And then he'd, you know, tell them one aspect of the law. And then he'd come along and say, But I tell you, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And they would say, Well, yeah, we've heard it said. We've heard that said ever since we were kids. And our parents told us, and our grandparents told us, and the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, and, and Moses said it. And then God told Moses, Jesus, so yeah, we've heard it said, and who do you think you are to replace Moses? See, they didn't ever question Jesus and ask him, what do you think you're doing? Whenever they questioned Jesus, it was always, who do you think you are? By whose authority do you do these things? Are you indeed the Messiah? Who said it was okay to change everything that we have built our national identity around? Jesus, only God can do the things and change the things that you claim the authority to do and to change. And it seems like every time there was one of these challenges to his authority, Jesus would seemingly, you, you kind of feel this from the text, Jesus would just, he wouldn't say anything. He'd just kind of smile at him and then he'd heal somebody. Then he'd feed a crowd miraculously. He'd give a message of hope and forgive somebody's sins. And that was another thing they couldn't get. You know, you don't have the authority to do this. And he'd say, what's easier for me to tell somebody your sins are forgiven or to tell them to miraculously get up and walk from their crippled condition? And then he'd tell them, get up and walk. Here's proof that I have the authority to do these things. And some people, usually the people that were kind of pushed away from God by the old covenant and the old system, they kind of smile back at Jesus because what he was talking about sounded good. And they liked bacon. And they really wanted to be part of what Jesus was doing. But the caretakers of the old covenant, they weren't smiling at all. And they hated the fact that Jesus was gaining influence with the crowd that they had fought so hard and for so long to control through their teachings. And so they'd follow Jesus around, these different pressure groups. And, and every time he'd have a crowd, they'd be there in the crowd. And when it came time for questions and answers at the end, it, you know, they, they, they'd, they'd get him in this crowd and they'd try and embarrass him with a trick question. They'd come up with this really complex legal question. You know, like you, lawyers do nowadays. You know, like people blatantly do something wrong nowadays and lawyers get them off the hook. You guys know what I'm talking about? Any lawyers in the room, I'm praying for you. God bless you. But just, you know, it just, it seems like actually what's going on in the news today. They wanted to do what's going on in our news today. Like, let, let's get people, you know, if I'm on this side of the political aisle, then I'm going to go attack somebody on that side. Or, you know, if I'm on this side, then I'm going to attack somebody. And I'm going to go listen to their speech and I'm going to take a quote and pull it out of context. I'm going to twist what they're saying. I'm going to try and make this person seem like a, like a liar or like a buffoon or maybe, you know, offensive to a certain people group. And I'm going to discredit them among the people. And that's what they were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to discredit him among the crowd because if they could discredit him in the crowd, then he would lose the crowd. And if he lost the crowd, then they could step in and arrest Jesus and get rid of Jesus. And so one time they, they joined forces against Jesus and thought, you know, hey, between us smart people, we know the law inside and out. Maybe we can, 
We can trip him up if we work together. And Matthew was there, and we find it in Matthew chapter 22. It's actually our chapter of the week this week, but Matthew 22, Matthew was there. He tells us, then the Pharisees went out, and they laid plans to trap him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And the Herodians were actually not even so much a a religious pressure group. They were a political pressure group. Herod had been this kind of puppet king that Rome had put into power to rule the region. And the Herodians kind of named themselves after Herod. And so they were kind of on the side of Rome. We're going to play both sides. And we're going to, you know, keep everybody calm for the Romans' sake and then tell them that we're working on Rome for their sake. And we're going to get rich taking money from both sides. They were the ultimate politicians. And the Pharisees, they hated Rome. They didn't want anything to do with Rome because Rome was pagan, which meant that Rome was defiled. There's that word again, right? But these two natural enemies were joining forces against Jesus. And in verse 16, they start buttering Jesus up. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They never said this to Jesus before. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us then, what's your opinion, Jesus? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And see, what happened is Rome had rolled into Israel and taken over the nation. And what Rome would do, this is the way they conquered the world. They would roll into an area and kill off all the rebels and all the opposing forces And then they tell all the rest of the people, well, hey, now that we've made it peaceful around here, you're welcome. And by the way, since we've made it so good for you guys, we're going to need you guys to pay us taxes to support us being here, ruling over you, keeping you under our thumb. Well, how does that sound to you? How would you like it if ISIS rolled into Fairfield, California and killed some of our sons and our uncles and brothers and Cousins, and then Isis said, you're welcome. And by the way, we're gonna give you a new tax called the imperial tax, and you're gonna need to to pay that to support us being here since we've made things so nice for you guys. Well, of course we wouldn't want that. Of course that doesn't feel right or seem right. And so they're asking Jesus, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Not a person in that crowd thought it was right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar but the Herodians were there. If Jesus said that it's not right, then the Herodians would say, hey, he's inciting rebellion against Rome. So say that it's wrong, right? Then you get the Herodians on, you say that it's the right thing to do, you lose the crowd. We got you, Jesus. We have cornered you, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, show me the coin that you use for paying the tax. Because you had to pay the Roman tax with a Roman coin. You couldn't use pesos to pay the Roman tax. Jesus said, show me the coin that you used to pay the Roman tax bill. And he said, whose image is this and whose inscription? And they said, well, that's Caesar's picture on that coin. In other words, what Jesus is asking them is, where did this coin come from? Jewish people didn't make this coin. Roman people made this coin. Well, how did it get into our economy? The Romans had put it into their economy. And the Herodians knew this better than anybody because King Herod had invested a ton of Roman money into the Jewish economy. And so Jesus said to them, so then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. Somebody in the crowd said, oh snap. (laughs) He's brilliant. Jesus was so, you see how brilliant he is? 
He was so, so smart. But look at the double meaning also in what he said. We know what belongs to Caesar because of what is made in Caesar's image. But what they should have asked next is, how do we know what is God's? To which the answer is, whatever is made in God's image. You are made in God's image. I am made in God's image. And from this seeming trap in Jesus where they think that they have got them, Jesus brings a condemnation to them for trying to live apart from giving themselves to God. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they get all embarrassed. You know, would you look at the time? We've got to go, you know, and they kind of slink off to the back of the crowd and the crowd loves Jesus more than ever. I mean, who doesn't love seeing someone stuck up get embarrassed when they try and embarrass the hometown hero, right? And that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Another one of these religious pressure groups. My dad's been telling this since I was a kid. You know how you know, you know how to remember what the Sadducees believed in? They believed there was no resurrection. They did not believe there was an afterlife. And so they were sad, you see. Right, Dad? Did I get it? That's, that's the way you remember. The Sadducees came to Jesus, and they asked him this really convoluted question about, about remarriage and the afterlife, and, and, and you know, it's, it's just this whole convoluted scenario, and you can read it for yourself this week. It's just weird. They've made up this, this you know, uh, fictional example and, and basically said there's this woman that had to marry all these different brothers. And so in the resurrection, you know, who gets to have her as his wife? And in their question, they're kind of treating women like women were commonly treated in that day to kind of make women more of a possession than to value them as their own person. And Jesus was blowing away, ready to blow away all the, you know, their ideas and their concepts of women belonging to men. And he tells them, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. You don't understand what's going on. In the end of everything, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage. Like women were just given in marriage. But he said, everyone's going to be this equal thing. We're all going to be like the angels. Men and women will be equal, equal children of God, equal messengers of God, just like the angels are. And when the crowd heard this teaching from Jesus, they were astonished at his teaching. They were, they were blown away. We're not blown away because it's just weird. They were blown away because this was part of their national law. They had known about these things since they were children going to Sunday school. But wow, nobody has ever said the things that Jesus is saying. No one has ever given value to the marginalized in our society like Jesus is giving value to the marginalized in our society. And this is revolutionary. This is something brand new that Jesus was doing. And so hearing, verse 34, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together again. They wanted to take Another shot. And this is where we're going today. This, this next interaction here. If you've been around church before, you've probably heard this before. And, and, and you know, maybe you've never seen it in the context of what Jesus came to do. But this is a pointer. This is a hint at this new thing that Jesus was doing. And in verse 35, it said, One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Again, he wasn't honestly asking something. He's testing Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment 
in the law, in all the law that Moses gave us, in all of the terms and conditions of our national covenant, what's the most important thing? And everybody in the crowd knew this answer. Everybody in the crowd could have quoted along with Jesus when he gave this answer. This quote that he's about to do, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. And they had learned this in Sunday school. It even got its own name. This law was called the Shema. And it's hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord, your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the teacher of the law, this expert in the law, he knew this. Everybody in the crowd knew this. Jesus, he called Jesus a teacher. He knew that Jesus knew this. This was a setup question. And so Jesus gives him the answer, and then Jesus gives him a lot more than he bargained for. In verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, to which everybody in the crowd is like, yeah, we get it. We know that. That's the Shema. And then Jesus goes on, and... You think, wait, 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 no, Jesus. There's, there's no and after this, Jesus. That's the Shema. That's the period. That's where it ends. When we were in Sunday school and learned the Shema, after we quoted the Shema, we got snacks. There is no and, Jesus. And he says, and the second is like it. And this phrase, like it, in the original language, it's saying the second is equal to the first one. The second is just as great as the first one. It might be second in sequence, but it is not second in greatness. It's like me saying my first kid is Caleb and my second kid is JL. It does not mean that Caleb is greater than JL. It means that Caleb simply came before JL. The second is like the first. They were made to go together. Well, Jesus, what's the second commandment that's equal to love our God, the Shema? And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, nobody's ever done this. Nobody's ever talked to us about the imperial tax this way. Nobody's ever talked to us about the afterlife this way or the value of women this way. Nobody has ever made anything equal to the Shema. What do you mean? Love your neighbor as... That, that is a command in our law. We do know that's in there, but it's not even in the same document as the Shema. The, the Shema is in Deuteronomy, and this one comes from Leviticus. And now you're putting these two things together that nobody else has done before. And Jesus is hinting at something that he acted out and did all during his public ministry. He was telling them, and he's telling us, that religion, that holiness, that purity and, and piety, it needs to move from a purely vertical concept it needs to move from just a vertical relationship that you have with God. And it needs to also take into consideration a horizontal aspect. And it needs to deal with how much you love other people who are made in the image of God. Jesus, this is new. Jesus, this is strange. In the religious world that Jesus witnessed and, and eventually would condemn, and maybe in the religious world that you grew up in or that you knew before, if you're just thinking about coming back to church or thinking about you know, looking into following Jesus again. But in that world and in some of our worlds and some of the contexts that we have known before, people could say that they love God but treat other people like dirt. People could say and claim that they were right with God even though they habitually did other people wrong. 
And if they're ever called out on their behavior and told that they're not right, they would say, no, no, I am right because I go to church. I didn't treat you right, but I treat God right. I didn't say kind things to you, but I just came from a service where I sang praises to God. And I've confessed my sins. And I've been baptized. And I worship and clap my hands. I I even give money. I give tithes and offerings to the church. And what happened then is the same thing that's happening now to Christianity in America. People on the outside looking in think, yeah, he calls himself a Christian, but look how he treats his wife. Yeah, she calls herself a follower of Jesus, but, but look how she talks all that junk about her boss. Oh, it's getting real in here. Come on, somebody. Mm, uh, getting to the nitty where it's gritty. You know, why does he say that he, he calls himself a Christian? He calls himself a Christian, but why does he talk that way about Democrats? Oh, let's take it real. Come on. She calls herself a Christian, but why does she say those things about Republicans? Why does he say that about that group of people? How can she abuse that person in that relationship? And how can he misuse and abuse those privileges that were given to him at the expense of someone else? And what that thinking does and what that thinking says is that what I do to you does not matter. All that matters is what I do for you. God, Jesus said, no, something new is here. Something new is here. And in fact, you teach her an expert of the law. All of your law that you're an expert in, all of the prophets that you know and have memorized, hang on these two commandments. Everything from Exodus 20 all the way through the end of the Old Testament. Everything from Moses to Malachi. Your entire sacred body of scripture hangs on these two commands. And Jesus has taken the whole Old Testament, the whole terms and conditions of a national covenant and reduced it down to two commands that he says are equal in value. And Jesus is teaching them, as we'll see in just a little bit, that our love for God is actually proven by how we love others. We got to get this. Hello, Jesus followers. Hello, new covenant people. We've got to get this right. Now, look, the Jewish people had a lot of work to do to get on board with what he's saying, and we do too. It's hard. And even though, you know, this love your neighbor that he quoted, it comes from Leviticus. When you go and read that in context, when it says love your neighbor in Leviticus, in that context, the neighbor is actually Jewish. So they're like, at first, they're like, okay, love my neighbor. Love my Jewish neighbor? Okay, Jesus, I'm kind of on board with that. And it's almost as if Jesus was slowly leading them into this change. Let me first get you thinking about how you treat your Jewish neighbor. And then we'll talk in a little bit about how you treat your non-Jewish neighbor. And sure enough, a little while later, another lawyer comes to Jesus with another trick question. And basically, his trick question gets summed up in this question. Jesus, who is my neighbor. Anybody heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? That's where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in. And Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a story. There's a Jewish man and he gets mugged and left for dead on the side of the road. And as he's laying there half dead, a religious guy comes along. And when he sees him over there laying on the side of the road about to die, he crosses to the other side of the street and passes on by. 
He won't even go over and touch him or shake him to see if he's awake. Because if he did, under all these extra rules they added, he would become defiled. There's that word again. And their idea of what was holy had kept them from loving someone who was hurting. And Jesus said, I'm redefining all of that. And in his story, he sends a second religious guy. And the second religious guy does the exact same thing as the first guy. And then in the parable, Jesus sends a third man. And the third man ends up being a Samaritan. And everybody in Jesus' Jewish audience groaned because they knew what Jesus was about to do. He's about to make the hero a Samaritan, isn't he? Yeah, he's about to make the hero a Samaritan. Oh, we hate Samaritans. We don't hang out with Samaritans. We don't eat with Samaritans. We won't touch Samaritans. They are worse than the pagans. And this person that they themselves would never have touched went over to the wounded Jewish man and touched him and gave him medical attention and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn. And out of his own resources and his own money, he pays the innkeeper and says, keep him here for a few days and feed him and nurse him back to health. And I'm gonna come back through. And if this isn't enough money to take care of him, then I'll give you some more money when I, came, when I come back. And in that parable, Jesus redefines how we determine who our neighbor is. He completely changes the way we think about neighbors. Before, when we're trying to figure out who our neighbor is, we look around ourselves for people who look like ourselves. We look around ourselves for people who live close to ourselves, who walk like us and who talk like us. That must be who our neighbors are. But at the end of the Good Samaritan parable, in Luke chapter 10, verse 36, Jesus asked this teacher of the law, so which of these three guys do you think was a neighbor to the man? He changes the whole paradigm. Not who was this man's neighbor, but who was a neighbor to the man. He's telling them, stop measuring people and judging people based on your idea of what a neighbor should be and instead just go be a neighbor to somebody. Stop measuring someone's qualities and whether or not they're qualified. Stop measuring their contribution to your relationship or to your world. Stop considering their race and quit thinking about their political affiliation and stop worrying about whether or not they are clean or unclean. And you be a neighbor to the people who are hurting and broken and lost in this world. changed everything. This changed everything. There was no category for this. They had put these, nobody had ever put these ideas together like Jesus did. Changed everything. And like we saw last week on the night of Passover, a night when they celebrated the beginning of their old covenant, Jesus celebrated the beginning of the new covenant. And he and his 12 closest followers go to celebrate the Last Supper together. You guys seen that famous painting of the Last Supper? You guys seen that before? The famous painting of all of them seated at the table. The guy organizing the dinner goes to the innkeeper and says, we need a table for 26. The innkeeper says, well, there's only 13 of you. The guy says, yeah, but we all want to sit on the same side. Think about it. But then in that setting, that night, he gives him the new covenant. It was the same night. It was the same meal when he would give them also the new command for the new covenant. The single guiding ethic that summed up everything he had been trying to teach. 
to the teachers and the experts of the law. This, the, the guiding ethic that would contain all of the fine print in one simple thing. The, the guiding ethic that we as Jesus followers need to embrace to show that we are part of Jesus' new covenant. Not to get into the new covenant, but to show that we are indeed a part of the new covenant. So Jesus says in John chapter 13 and 34, a new command I give you. Jesus, you're going to boil this down to one command? Like we had 613 commands under Moses, under the old covenant. You're in your new covenant. You're going to give us one thing? Jesus, we remember what God promised through Jeremiah. And we looked at that last week too, right? Jeremiah 31. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. That God was going to write his law on people's hearts and minds. Jesus, when we saw that word law, we kind of assumed it was like, you know, the law of Moses is really like laws of Moses. We were kind of thinking like the law of the new covenant might be many laws, but you're talking as if it's one law. And listen to me, church. Listen to me, people of the new covenant. If we can get this right, it changes everything. If we can get this right, the way that we determine who is our neighbor changes. The people that we are willing to touch and to reach and to forgive and to be with and to love and to share with, it all changes. And in a world that is so fractured and in a world that is so divided, in a world that is being pushed apart from the middle, the church, the Jesus movement, we in this room have the opportunity in the darkest of night to shine the brightest of light, to shine the love of Jesus Christ. A new command I give you, love one another. Well, Jesus, that's, that's not new, Jesus. We've had that from the beginning. You see, he would have said, yes, you have had it from the beginning, but your definition of love isn't doing so hot. You guys can't even agree on who your neighbors are. So I'm gonna clarify this and I'm gonna add some, some, some clearing up language, a clause to the end of this that's gonna give you a new definition of what love looks like for one another. And Jesus finished, as I have loved you, so you must. Not, it would be a good idea if, hey, maybe if you want to, so you must love one another. And he's talking to 12 outsiders. He had gathered these ragtag bunch of misfits to be the leaders of his movement. He didn't ask the smartest people to join as the leaders of his movement. He didn't ask the most educated. He didn't go to the Bible school and recruit from there, go to seminar, seminary and, and recruit the theologians. He had taken fishermen and, and tax collectors. And in fact, he would have said that night to Matthew, who was a tax collector. Matthew, whose job it was to collect that imperial tax we're talking about a traitor to his own people. Jesus would have looked at him and said, Matthew, do you remember where I found you and how I treated you and how that even though you were an outcast from the rest of your people, that I invited you and I said, Matthew, come follow me. Before you change, before you get your act together and get everything cleaned up, you come follow me and you will be changed as you follow me. I have loved you, Matthew, before you have ever loved me or done anything for me. Matthew, 
is I have loved you, so you must love. So you must love. Peter, you're so loud and you're so rude and you're so brash. Just a few hours, you think violence is the answer to everything. You're about to chop somebody's ear off, Peter. Always sticking your sandal in your mouth. Always saying the wrong thing. Always getting into trouble, Peter. But you know how many times I have forgiven you and how many times I'm about to forgive you again, Peter? I've never pushed you away, Peter, as I have loved you. As I have looked past your failures and your faults, Peter, I want you to turn and face the people around you and look past their failures and look past their faults and forgive as I have forgiven you, James and John, you two brothers that all you can think about is beating the other 10 guys out to sit on my right and my left. You just care about yourselves, but I've never pushed you away. I've welcomed you as I have loved you. You must love I love how John, who one of the disciples that was there, they were in chapter 13 of John. I love verse one of John. Go read it for yourself. I love what it says. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In just a few short hours from this meal and this giving of this new command, Jesus would be arrested and all of them would run away, and yet he still loved them. He would go to trial, and people, false witnesses would come and say things about him that were not true, and his own followers were not there to correct the record, and Jesus loved them to the end. They tied Jesus to a post and whipped him and ripped his back to shreds, and they took Jesus and marched him up a hill, and they drove nails through his hands and nails through his feet and nailed him to a cross and lifted him up in the air and suspended him between heaven and earth, and nobody was around to join him. Nobody was there to comfort him, and Jesus loved them to the end. Hanging there on a cross, Jesus spilled his blood to cover their sins and their failures and their wrongs. And he spilled his blood to cover your sins and my sins and your injustices and my injustice. All of our failures are covered under the blood of Jesus. He loved them and he loves us to the end. Nailed to a cross, still he would pray, Father, forgive them. Dear God, nailed to a cross while he is dying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So Matthew, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, as I have loved you, so you must. Guys, you've got to get this right. Guys, as I ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit back to help you and empower you, this is the one thing. This is the one thing. By this, he said, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. They're not gonna know you're my disciples by how much you love me. I'm about to ascend into heaven. They're not gonna know how, how good you are with God by how much you say you love the invisible God. In fact, John, writing in 1 John, John was there and he actually gave us application. He said, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get to say that you love the invisible God if you don't love your brothers and sisters that you can actually see with your eyes who are made in the image of that invisible God. This is the one thing. Jesus gave one command 
And compared to 613 commands under a national covenant, this was way easier to remember. They didn't need teachers of the law. They didn't need experts of the Bible to explain. It was simple. Love other people like Jesus loved you. But when you begin to see how much that love can cost you, when you begin to see that that love might lead you up a hill of your own selfish desires and cause you to lay down your wants for the sake of somebody else, it's way easier to remember but it is far, far more demanding to live. It's far more demanding to live. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And see, people not understanding this is the reason that pastors get questions like, you know, hey, pastor, what's the Bible say about, you know, and then they give you this subject that they're worried about. Or or pastor, you know, can you tell me, is that a salvation issue, pastor? Right, you know, and most of the time, what's behind that question is this. Pastor, I want to do this, but I don't want to break the terms and conditions of my relationship with God. I don't want God to be mad at me. So I know the Bible doesn't exactly cover this thing that I'm asking about, although it does say this about this. Is there space between that, Pastor? Is there a a loophole for me to get through? And Jesus stepped into a world that was full of professional religious loophole makers. And the hypocrisy in that religious system was overwhelming. And it drove people away from the very God who was trying to save them, to rescue them, and to offer them hope and love, forgiveness of their sins and their wrongs and their past. And so he gave a new commandment with no loopholes because there's only one command. There's no gap between the one command and the second command that you can kind of wiggle through. In the old covenant, people would ask, what does the law require? An old covenant thinking in a New Testament context might say, pastor, what do I need to get do to get into heaven? Pastor, can you give me a list and, and a set of do's and don'ts? But Jesus gave us one guiding ethic. He gave his first followers one guiding ethic that if they would, and if we would get this right, if we would ask the right question in every context of our our lives, in our matters of behavior, this next question, if we would ask this in, in our conduct with other people, When we sit down to do our monthly budget, if we would ask this next question as we deal with our finances and as as we enter into conversations with people and wonder what we can say and what we need to say to other people, if we can ask this, in the way that we present ourselves to other people, in the way that we conduct ourselves in speech and in dress, in what we are willing to give to others, in what we are willing to forgive others for, will never go wrong because the new command of the new covenant asked this question, what does love require of me? What does love, like Jesus' love, require of me? You may not always know chapter and verse about something. You may not know, you know, which religious leader to believe because you may be getting seemingly conflicting information, but you can always ask this question, what does love require of me? This is the new command of the new covenant. And listen, everything else in the New Testament, everything else under this new covenant is not a list of rules, of do's and don'ts. We are not living under the law 2.0. 
We read it last week, Jeremiah 31. The new covenant will not be like the old covenant. And Paul, who wrote over half of the new covenant letters and documents, he knew this. And you see it time and time and time again. And in for I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. There's like 15 examples. I had to boil it down to two. There's a ton of examples of this. Colossians chapter 3 in the New Living Translation, verse 12, Paul tells the people, look, uh, so since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. And when we look at that list, we might think, well, Paul's giving us the new commandments. Paul's giving us the new list of rules, but then Paul finishes up at the end of verse 13 and he just tells him one thing. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. This is what it's all about. Paul told the Philippian church, hey, I came and I started you, Philippian church. Now I want to talk to you about relationships. And in Philippians chapter two, he's going to talk to them about their relationships with each other. And that's a big one, right? Man, we got work relationships, we got spouse relationships. We got sister and brothers and parents and, and our, our children relationships. You know, Paul, if you're going to talk about relationships, I'm going to need more notebooks. I got to take a lot of notes about this. And Paul would say, no, you don't need a bunch of notebooks. You just need to remember one thing. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. When you're wondering how to respond to your husband when he's being a jerk, Remember how Jesus treated you when you were a jerk to him. What did Jesus offer you when you did him wrong? What did Jesus do to you for you? What did Jesus say about you when you pushed him away? When you accused him of being absent, when you misunderstood what he was trying to say to you. And over and over and over again in the new covenant, we are called back to Calvary. We are called back to the cross. We are called back to the way that Jesus loved us. And we're given a new command in the new covenant. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As Jesus loved you, so you must love one another. It covers everything. There are no loopholes. And the early church got this so right. In a world, a Roman world, that theologians and historians conservatively estimate that was made up approximately of 50% slave people. One out of every two people you would meet in that Roman world. Conservative estimates was a slave. And yet in the Jesus movement, slave and free came together. It was, a, it was a system that was so divided by class. You were either wealthy or you weren't. There was no middle ground. But yet in the Jesus movement, in these churches that sprung up everywhere, wealthy and poor would come together. And they would share meals. And when one of them had a need, the wealthy would give and would share with them. And they wouldn't dress in expensive clothes and deck themselves out to the nines because they loved they're poor brothers and sisters and they never wanted to rub anything in their faces. They loved one another. And when the people in that world and the people of that day looked at the brokenness around them and looked at the violence around them, looked at the intense class separation and the slave and the free and everything else, and then they turned and they looked at the churches and they looked at the Jesus movement. 
where they loved one another as Jesus had loved them. They said, I want in. I want to be a part. And against all odds, with no military, with no formal funding structure, this Jesus movement, sandwiched between the Jewish temple system and the might of the Roman army, changed the world. And from its small beginnings with 120 people on the day of Pentecost, within a couple of centuries, the Jesus movement became the official religion of the very empire that had crucified its founder. And it started person by person in heart by heart and relationship by relationship. They loved one another as Jesus had loved them. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it's alive today. And over a third of the world's population claims Jesus as their Lord and as their King and says that he has loved me, and so I'm trying to love others. It's something I'm so happy to say. I'm so proud to say. It's the one thing that we hear most about new people from our church, that they feel welcome and they feel loved the very first time they walk through these doors. Church, we got to get this right. Church, we can't ever lose this. This is driven by our small groups, and it's the reason our small groups exist. And we're, you know, we kicked off small group signups last Sunday. You got to be part of a small group this semester. You know, you may be wondering, well, is that a rule? Can I still go to heaven if I don't join small groups? To which I say, maybe. <laughs> but if you're not going to join a small group, just tell me when, where, how. Are you going to love one another as Jesus loved you? It's the perfect opportunity. Love one another just as I have, so you should love one another. So you must love one another. Can we all stand in this room this morning? I, uh, I have two things that I say to my kids um, all the time. You know, being a parent, it's not always fun, right? My kids sadly, get my hard-headedness. Thankfully, they get my wife's sweetness. But they still seem to have a lot more of my hard-headedness than her sweetness. And man, they fight like crazy. And I was so tired of telling them, hey, quit fighting. Hey, quit fighting. Because they could quit fighting for the moment, but then they would do something that would make the other person, the other one angry at them, and then they'd start fighting again, right? Quit fighting. They figure out another way to aggravate them, right? Caleb's the best at this. I'm telling on Caleb. Caleb is, you know, he will get you, man. He can get you so mad at him. He is really good at it. And so I came up with a new thing. It's like, you know what? Jesus is pretty smart. Let me take a, let me take a page out of his book. And so now I have one rule in my house with my kids. It's two words. Be kind. There's no loophole. When he does something to her that gets her mad, jail, be kind. When I correct him for doing something to her that got her mad, I tell him, Caleb, come on, what's the rule? Be kind, I know, be kind. But it covers everything. It does, it takes care of everything. Dad, it's my turn to sit in the front seat. Come on, parents. That drama is real. Like, that's come, that can cause a meltdown right there. His arm's on my side. What's the rule? Be kind. Be kind. 
Just Friday night, it was so awesome. The dog didn't have any food or water, and I don't remember what we were doing, and Caleb was in the other room, and Caleb was playing a video game, and, and so, you know, I said, Jay, I'll feed, you know, can you put food and water in the dog's bowl? And she said, Dad, it's not my turn. This is Caleb's turn. I said, Jay, he's playing a video game online with his friends right now. You know what I'm about to say. <sighs> she huffed and puffed, man. She went over to that thing, and she opened that door, and she got the dog food out, and as she did, the dog came over, and we have a boxer at home. He's got a crop tail, and his hind end's going like this because that's what dogs, you know, boxers do. I mean, he can't wag his tail. He wags his whole backside. I won't demonstrate for you, but he just... <laughs> but out of that, and then Caleb kind of heard what's going on, and Caleb from the other room, thank you, JL. Like, it changed. The atmosphere changed. The huffiness and puffiness and wanting to blow Caleb's house down. Just, it went away. It went away. When the thing that we are supposed to do is for the benefit of someone else, it changes everything. It changes everything. And I don't know what they've done to you. I don't know what they've said to you. I don't know how they've offended you or how they have walked on you or how they have misabused or taken advantage of your kindness and your good graces. But as Jesus has loved you, you've got to love them. You've got to love them. As he has forgiven you, you've got to forgive them. His love is without end and his mercies never fail. His compassions never fail. Every single morning that you open your eyes, there are brand new mercies waiting for you. And he has covered your sins. He has covered your past. And he invites you into his movement. And it says, Jesus has loved us, so we must love one another. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.